Welcome everyone to our 12th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. I'm Jennifer Brasaris with Independent Women's Law Center. And I'm Inez Stepman with Independent Women's Forum. It's Thursday at five o'clock, which means you are at the bar. Um, Jennifer, what are you drinking? Well, it's beautiful fall day here in Boston. So in honor of that, I am drinking a classic hard apple cider and looking forward to maybe doing some apple picking this weekend with my family. So I'm getting in the mood for that. I do love fall, especially since I moved to New York. It's uh, it's so lovely. Um, and I just can't wait for like all the leaves to start turning here. They haven't quite, they're almost there. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a late, late turn this year too. We haven't really started yet up in Boston, but um, the apples are ready to be picked. So I'm ready to go. So today we're going to be talking about some of the, the legal issues surrounding vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, which is a very intensely debated issue uh, in the United States today. Um, but whether private entities have a right to require customers or employees to get vaccinated and whether the government at what level, I know if, if so, at what levels the government um, has the right to tell private employers to go ahead um, and get vaccinated, uh, get force their employees to get vaccinated on pain of losing their jobs. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And to break it all down, we have a very special guest today. IWF visiting legal fellow May Davis joins us. Where is she? There's oh, bring her up. Oh. Hi, May. Hi. How are you? I'm great. I'm uh, I'm joining you, Jennifer, in, <laughs> in celebrating 5 p.m. Excellent. So. <laughs> I'm glad you are. So for people who don't know, um, May Davis is a former legal advisor to President Donald J. Trump. Um, she served in the White House for all four years of the Trump presidency, uh, where she advised the administration on a wide range of policies, including health care, uh, very relevant here, and immigration. Uh, but prior to joining the administration, she practiced law in Denver, Colorado, and she has a JD from Harvard Law School, very fancy, uh, and and uh, where she also served as the president of the Federalist Society. So uh, May is a wonderful uh, and, and person to bring on to have this discussion about the constitutionality um, and perhaps the wisdom of vaccine mandates. So welcome, May. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I just want to start off by saying, because I feel like there's there's some degree of confusion when I talk about this, at least in casual conversation with my sort of relatives and neighbors. My questions about vaccine mandates have nothing to do with my belief about the efficacy of vaccines. I'm mandated. Uh, my four children are mandated. Are vac I'm vaccinated. I'm not mandated. Um, my children are vaccinated. My husband's vaccinated. I would strongly encourage everybody to get vaccinated. Um, not only do I believe that they work, uh, I think they're our passport back to normal if we can ever get there. Um, but I do have some very real concerns about whether the government, particularly the federal government, can mandate vaccines and particularly whether they can mandate private, mandate that private companies then in turn mandate that their workers do certain things. Yeah, I think that's a real distinction. I remember from the book 1984, there's a telescreen in your house to make sure that you're always doing the right thing. And so you have to go sit in front of the telescreen, you have to exercise for a certain amount of time per day. 
exercising every day is a good idea. You should do it. And even maybe there should be federal policies that encourage it, you know, like tax breaks to go to the gym or something like that. Exercise is great. But there's something different between we love exercise and you must exercise. And I think that's where people feel uncomfortable with vaccine mandates. And, you know, that's a real question. Can, can you make someone do it in order to do basic things in life work, for example? Yeah, I think there are really um, a few issues here. Uh, let's, let's start by elucidating what the different mandates actually look like, right? So, cause it seems to me that there are a bunch of different um, situations that are all being called something along the lines of vaccine passports, right? Um, so first we have private businesses independent of the government deciding, for example, like, uh, you know, a concert hall or um, a particular restaurant deciding that they're going to require proof of vaccination to enter their private property. And then there are local vaccine mandates, um, or, or at least a type of mandate. Um, so I live in New York City. So what we have now is the city government um, has mandated that businesses, um, restaurants, concert halls, the Philharmonic, and so on, anything that's inside uh, and has a, a certain number, uh, number of people in it, um, but exempting crucially, and we'll talk about this, exempting some things like grocery stores or whatever, but basically things like restaurants, concerts, um, the city government is demanding that private businesses uh, do the enforcement at their door. So this is not an independent decision on the part, the part of businesses, it's coming from the city government. And then we have the, the big kahuna, right, which is the vaccine mandate um, that Joe Biden announced uh, recently where OSHA, as part of an emergency rule, which should not go through the, the normal notice and comment rulemaking process, an emergency rule is going to require that all businesses over the uh, who have 100 employees or more um, enforce a mandate in order to be compliant with the federal government, um, enforce a mandate that either their employees get vaccinated or they have to show a weekly negative um, test results, COVID test results. Uh, so there is these three different things, um, and, and we're going to talk about, I think, to some degree, all three of them, but I wanted to, to lay that out um, in the beginning. And, and uh, on that note, I think I'll, I'll uh, take the opportunity to play what the president um, actually said about his mandate. I'm announcing that the Department of Labor is developing an emergency rule to require all employers with 100 or more employees that together employ over 80 million workers to ensure their workforces are fully vaccinated or show a negative test at least once a week. Some of the biggest companies are already requiring this. United Airlines, Disney, Tyson's Food, and even Fox News. And so I thought... I thought this speech was so weird because when I first listened to it, part of what he said really resonated with me, right? The part about vaccines work and what we're experiencing now is really a pandemic of the unvaccinated. I thought that was completely true. And, and, and what I had hoped was that he would then pivot to, if you've chosen not to get vaccinated, then you're on your own. We can't help you, right? And everybody else can go and live their lives. Um, the vaccinated can live their lives and the unvaccinated are doing so at, at great risk to themselves and 
but the vaccinated people shouldn't have to bear that risk. Um, if he had said that, I would have you know, supported him and, and been thrilled. But instead, he veers off into this complete non sequitur where he says, we, the vaccinated, need to force the unvaccinated to get vaccinated in order to protect people who are vaccinated. But he just told us vaccines work. So why are vaccinated people afraid of unvaccinated people? I mean, the whole thing made no sense to me. Yeah, and then there's the way that this was set up, right? So um, to, to get to some of the legal issues here, I, th- I can see at least three major sort of bodies of law that are going to have to be explored and probably challenged um, in, in terms of how this, this mandate has been ruled out. So um, first, this is an agency doing this, right? Um, this is not Congress uh, writing a law and, and going through the democratic process. This is an agency rolling out a rule, which does not even, as I mentioned, does not comply with the APA standards. It's not been out for notice and comment. It's not a formal rulemaking, which I think will become probably relevant in the way that it's challenged in the courts. It's under an emergency mandate. Um, And it is, uh, crucially, it's telling businesses what to tell their employees, right? So there's this fulcrum of private business decision-making. And and I think that that kind of setup is going to be increasingly uh, part of our politics. And I think it's going to be really, really difficult, especially for those of us on the right to deal with, because increasingly what we're seeing is this kind of nod, nod, wink, wink, or in this case, an outright mandate, even when the mandate is struck down, I feel like the message has been received by America's corporate community, which is, this is what the government wants you to do. Um, and then the corporations go out and carry out things that the federal government very clearly cannot do itself, right? And I think we're seeing that pattern play out with big tech, with censorship, um, with a variety of concerning um, sort of developments in in our society and politics. So that's one line of challenge I think is going to be, and we'll talk about that, about the administrative way in which this happened, Um versus the, the the small d democratic way in which, you know, where we all learned about from the schoolhouse rock, like the bill on the Capitol Hill kind of thing. That's not how anything seems to happen anymore. It's an unelected agency that makes this decision and then it goes to the courts for review. Um, so that's one big branch of law that's, that is concerning here. But um, there are two others, I think. One, uh, if we go back to the Obamacare case, um, the original Sebelius Obamacare case where Justice Roberts decided to, to play a little, uh, you know, sort of wiggle room or carve out wiggle room for himself. He ultimately upheld the ACA, but he upheld it um, under the, the Congress's power to tax and not the Commerce Clause. Uh, and in, in fact, he joined with his fellow justices on the right. In, in saying this goes beyond, um, I'm going to just double check this, <laughs> uh, this goes beyond the, the Commerce Clause power that Congress has, right, that the federal government has, um, to the, even though in health insurance is an interstate market, right, um, requiring that any individual purchase a particular product is a violation of the Commerce Clause. So that'll be Sibelius. This is Now we're talking about the federal government requiring through a private company, not only that someone purchase a product, but that they take a particular medical intervention into their body. And that seems to me to be clearly at odds, even with the limits established in the ACA cases on the Commerce Clause. And then finally, there is the issue of federalism um, and and, uh, whether 
the federal government itself, like let's forget for a moment which which part of the federal government, i.e. that an agency did this, an executive agency and not Congress, even if Congress had legislated this kind of mandate, it's not at all clear to me um, that it is not vastly beyond the scope of its powers. And that in fact, all of these kinds of mandates, as we'll get to, of including vaccine mandates, um, have always been on the state and local level and have been considered part of the heart of police power uh, that the states have. So traditionally, when, when people talk about defining the state power, the state police power, it's for the health safety um, and actually it used to be health, safety and morals right now. It's health, safety and welfare, but it used to be health, safety and morals. That's the heart of um, what the police power at the level of the states is. So to to try to implement this mandate nationwide is a huge it seems obviously huge overreach. But um, I want to bring in May here. Um, why don't we start with the the misuse of administrative agencies, right, to accomplish something um, that potentially even Congress doesn't have the power to do, but certainly you know, it seems vastly um, like there's there's no accountability for if an agency can can go ahead and issue this kind of edict. It never has to go through Congress. Nobody who's elected and has to stand before the people actually puts their hands on this at all in a way. Right. So this is the problem with agencies and separation of powers, which is here are these things that are not elected officials. They're you know, who who are they? Well, they are sort of the vessels of Congress, which is Congress tells them what to do, and then they do that thing. And they can only do that thing, and that gives them some legitimacy. You know, well, Congress told me to do this, and so I did this, so you're, I'm just carrying out what you told me to do. Well, so the the thing that Congress told them to do is what, what the courts are going to have to figure out. And um, what they're going to look at is a 1970s law, uh, Occupational Health and Safety Act, which governs the workplace. And it's pretty broad. There have been many challenges saying it's so broad that there's no way Congress could have told them to do anything specific because it just says kind of go out and make the workplace safe. Um, and so how can you be an agent of Congress when Congress really didn't tell you what to do? Um, but let's just say that that's enough direction, go out and regulate the workplace. And they say, okay, now I wanna do a vaccine mandate. So there's a question of does does the law contain the vaccine mandate where you know, you've got a lot of problems? One, maybe you could have a vaccine mandate in a hospital. They actually already did put out an emergency temporary standard for hospitals requiring mask use and a couple of other things. But what about the remote worker who works at home and who doesn't see anybody? How is that regulating safety in the workplace? They don't go to the workplace. So, so there will be some questions like that that'll just depend on um, how how the vaccine mandate will uh, end up being phrased. Um, and then you brought up that this is sort of an emergency statute. Uh, these emergency procedures under the Occupational Health and Safety Act have only been used 10 times in history, and one was in June, dealing with the healthcare workers and masks. Um, and so you, and the last one before that was in 1983. So these are really, really rare. Uh, they're often struck down um, because employers for failing to comply with these mandates can face criminal penalties if someone dies. And COVID, we know, does kill people. So 
the if a, if an employer doesn't do something right and somebody dies, they can go to jail, which means this emergency way of promulgating it is a big, big deal because usually the normal time it takes to do these standards is seven and a half years to study the workplace, figure out what's the level of asbestos, what's the level of benzene, what's the level of vinyl chloride. It takes a long time. And then to just do it like that and then, oh, you can go to jail. You know, the, these are big questions. Um, I want to read to you, May, from something that you wrote for the IW blog um, that you titled, What are the Limits of Health Tyranny? Because um, you really point to the fact that this, I mean, if they can do this, they can do a lot of things, right? Um, so I want to quote you here. If, if the federal government can mandate workplace safety standards that determine whether you pose a risk to your coworkers, what are the limits? Can government forbid workers from attending major gatherings? Can it require workers to wear a mask when not at work? Can it prohibit workers from caring for sick dependents? How different really is a vaccine mandate, which protects you and your community's hospital bed capacity from a birth control mandate? Um, so can you, can you like explain why? Because I think people are so stuck in this kind of COVID world, right? Um, understandably so. I'm, I'm definitely not somebody who downplays the effects of this pandemic, but they're not thinking about how these kinds of structural changes to government might be used in a thousand different ways, maybe years from now, where, um, you know, hopefully, finally, this pandemic will be behind us. Could you like explain a little bit more about that? Right. So I think the the first question about all right, if you can regulate safety in the workplace, but it's not really about safety in the workplace, it's about, hey, you go get a vaccine, um, even though a vaccinated person has a one in 160,000 like, chance of ending in the hospital, um, then this isn't really about workplace safety. This is about, we want you to be safe from COVID. And so if this is about, we want you to be safe from COVID, well, then you can't go to social gatherings and then show up to work. You can't, sorry, no more concerts. No, you, you can't do both. And I just don't know if there's a, a clear distinction between those things. You're, you're bringing yourself into an unsafe situation, so you can't work. And then the birth control mandate is, well, the federal government has only limited powers that are in a written constitution. And if they assert that now we can expand those powers in order to preserve hospital beds, to preserve public health, well, there is a birth control shot. You take it four times a year and you are uh, not going to be pregnant. So the federal government wants to protect public health, unwanted pregnancies, result in poverty. I mean, maternal health is low, low childbirth weight. I mean, there's big public health costs. There's big public health problems. And it takes up hospital beds, certainly. Pregnancy takes up hospital beds. So if the government really wants to just improve our public health and they can do anything they want to our bodies to improve public health, it really makes you wonder, where's the limit? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, I thought your analogy was an interesting one. Um, Inez, I think we have a graphic of T-shirts maybe that you could put up because I think it's, you know, the irony is you have the you know 
liberals, free choice people on the one hand, constantly saying my body, my choice when it comes to abortion, but when it comes to vaccine mandates, not so much. So now you have these new t-shirts that are for sale by people on the right saying, you know, my body, my choice. At what point does the government get to tell you what to put in your body? Um, I think the bigger issue though, for me, legally and constitutionally, is at what point does the government get to tell private employers uh, what they need to mandate in the workplace? And I, I, I should say in the interest of full disclosure that I used to be an employment lawyer. I represented major corporations. Um, and so my bias is definitely in favor of, of the free market and in favor of employers being able to structure their workplaces in the way that they see fit. But there, there is no other area where the government tells, you know, General Electric uh, what their employees have to do in terms of their health. The government isn't telling General Electric, uh, you know, your employees must exercise. Your employees must take birth control. Your employees, uh, you know, if, if they get pregnant, should have abortions because we don't want, you know, the world to be overpopulated. But, but your point is, I mean, it's, you know, you're, you're making a slippery slope argument, but, but I think slippery slope arguments need to be considered that if the government can force companies to force their workers to take a vaccine, what's, what's the limit? What's the stopping point? Are we going to shift the goalposts in 10 years and say they can require all of these other things too? And, and I think, you know, we can think about two different scenarios. One is a workplace where the employer knows that there's a COVID risk and packs people in anyway, like a Governor Cuomo nursing home type of employer. Um, and they just have not provided a safe working environment. They, they know that no one's vaccinated. They're making everybody work closely with each other. That They're all elderly, like a really uncareful employer. And then like a Deloitte or somebody where nobody is at work and everyone's, you know, elsewhere and they work on their computer. And there is something about treating those two situations the same that administrative law really doesn't look kindly on. I mean, when agencies act, they have to be rational and to treat those two dissimilar things. Well, everybody, you know, everybody has to go get a, a vaccine is, is fairly irrational. Right. I, I also think, you know, when, when you talk about this to the average person, you know, as Inez pointed out, everybody's just thinking about COVID. They're not thinking about the precedence that this can set down the road or even currently. And, and really what we're seeing is the misuse of federal power um, to require things that, that, you know, a few years ago we never would have dreamed that the federal government had the power to do. I mean, nobody nobody suggests that would, would have suggested that the president, let alone the CDC, had the power to issue an eviction moratorium. Um, and yet that happens. And because it's COVID, people act as though that's just a, a normal use of government power. Maybe they think, well, it's just an emergency. You know, federal agencies won't issue mandates like that other than to protect us in an emergency. But I'm not sure that's true. What do you think? Absolutely. I'm, these types of policies end up being, you know, taken over by everybody. So everyone was 
so scared when President Trump issued a, an emergency on the southern border. Why? Because then everyone's just going to call something an emergency and they're just going to do it. And guess what? They were right. Now COVID is an emergency and um, and that's that followed the climate emergency. Massachusetts versus EPA said now uh, we can regulate everything in the name of climate change. And it it's just you can just call something an emergency and then do whatever it is that you'd like in order to control that emergency. Our southern border actually kind of is an emergency, I would say. But um, because there's no standard, really, it's just something that people use. And so for the eviction moratorium, uh, there was actually a judge to, that said, I don't see anywhere here where this is related to interstate commerce. And this judge in Texas actually did strike it down on interstate commerce grounds. But it's a little tough when you have, you know, a declared emergency because judges are going to look around themselves and say, you know, who am I to say this the southern border is or is an emergency? Who am I to say whether climate change is or is an emergency? COVID is or isn't an emergency? And and the more that this gets used and the more that judges aren't aren't sure what to do with it, uh, the fewer liberties that we're all going to have. But this is something I think that people should really be concerned about, right? This greater use of government power. I mean, you know, I have a son who's in high school and he's taking a class right now on the American presidency. And it never occurred to him, you know, until recently that, that the president didn't have the power to do whatever he wanted. And, you know, well, the president's supposed to protect us in emergency. Well, no, not necessarily. This is, uh, you know, a government of limited powers. And it's it's that way for a reason to protect all of us. Um, so I do think I, I do have my concerns about the vaccine mandate. You know, I'm not I'm not at all concerned if my employer, if Independent Women's Forum wanted to say everybody has to get vaccinated, that wouldn't bother me at all. Um, I, you know, I don't object to employers requiring that if if they decide that that's in the best interest of their workforce. And if people don't like it, they can go work elsewhere. I don't have to work at the Independent Women's Forum. I can go work at the Heritage Foundation or somewhere else. So I'm not against vaccine mandates. I'm against the abuse of federal power in, in what is, I believe, a, a tyrannical way. I'm, I'm glad you brought up um, expanding sort of emergency powers, maybe, because um, it seems to me that this is something we're really going to have. And I hope that after uh, this pandemic that we we circle back. Uh, full disclosure, I was one of the people who said, I don't like this use of emergency power at all on the southern border. I think this is going to be used over and over again. It sets a precedent. Um, I, I, The justification, though, for emergency powers, it seems to me... Uh, you know, like the, the fundamental, the, if you take the step back from the legal for a moment, like um, obviously, for example, Lincoln uh, used extensively emergency powers um, during the Civil War, uh, during wartime since the Civil War. Um, there often have, have been um, vast expansions of government power in emergency situations. What makes this different, it seems to me the justification for emergency powers has always been there's this crisis that needs to be dealt with in live time, right? As in there's there's a time crunch on the decision-making. So for example, the decision whether or not to deploy troops, right? In response to something that happens on the other side of the world. Um, well, you can't send that to Congress and have them deliberate for several months and then send back an answer, 
right? That 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 was kind of the the, the reason that the president does have broad executive powers when it comes to foreign policy. Um, is because our constitution recognizes that that sometimes decisions need to be made by a single decision maker quickly in an emergency and there's no time for the deliberative process that is lawmaking. It seems to me that a year and a half into this crisis, we really have to be talking about when are we going to return? And this is on the state level as well, right? Because you still have most governors uh, in the United States acting as essentially monarchs right now. Um, You know, at what point... Uh, even if something is a legitimate emergency, if the justification for emergency powers has now uh, gotten much lower, right? If, if, if there's no reason why, for example, to my mind, these kinds of issues, vaccine mandates, mask mandates, uh, are now so critically pressing in terms of time that they cannot be deliberated on by the appropriate legislative bodies, Um because, you know, whether you put in a mandate this week or two weeks from now, you know, everybody in America is aware of COVID, right? <laughs> Nobody is like wandering around having no idea uh, that we have been in a pandemic for the last year and a half. So those justifications for those emergency powers, it seems to me, are much, much weaker now than they would have been at the start of the pandemic when we didn't know anything about this disease. Um, we had to act fast, right? Um, the justification seems they're stronger. Um, I'm wondering if... Maybe this is, uh, and I know uh, there isn't really that courts are really reluctant to wade into something like this because, like you said, May, they're reluctant to replace the legislator uh, legislators, and they're reluctant to replace even the president, the elected president. Um, but th- there's been so there's been quite a bit of pushback uh, to this mandate. Um, there there have been a bunch of states that. Uh, threaten have threatened uh, to sue. I don't know, if Jennifer. Um, you can you can talk to us a little bit about uh, what those states are claiming and how they're pushing back, and then we'll bring May in on that question as well. Well, I think there are a number of lawsuits that are going to be filed. Some I think have not, in fact, been filed yet. Um, but you know, I do think I think the issue you bring up about time is so important when it comes to emergency powers because it's not just that the executive um, is supposed to be able to be nimble enough to react in real time to a crisis on the ground. It's that whatever emergency measures are taken to deal with a crisis are supposed to be temporary. And what we've seen with with COVID is that so many of these so-called emergency measures went on to last months or a year or, you know, are, are permanent, right? And so permanent choices like vaccine mandate, you know, as a mandate to do something that's permanent. You get the vaccine, you can't take it back. Um, Not that I think you should take it back. I think everyone should get the vaccine. But from a philosophical and and legal standpoint, the whole notion behind giving uh, an executive this emergency power is that it's supposed to be so they can react quickly and and enact things that are temporary. And that is not what we're seeing. uh, you know, we've seen pushback in a lot of states. We had a case in Massachusetts that went up to the Supreme Judicial Court challenging Governor Baker's use of emergency powers uh, under our state constitution, um, which, by the way, doesn't give the governor the authority to do many of the things he did. Um, it, it, it applies very specifically to certain natural disaster type situations and, and not the situation we faced with COVID. 
And yet, even though I thought that the people challenging that case had very strong legal arguments, it went to the Supreme Court, Judicial Court of Massachusetts. And I think because, you know, judges are human and they're scared of COVID and they think this is, you know, a terrible thing, they upheld the, gov- the governor's use of those powers, setting what I think is a very bad precedent for the future. Um, and actually, what I, what I think is interesting, and we should, we should definitely devote a whole nother episode of At the Bar to this, is there's starting to be a movement on the ground to amend state constitutions um, to make very, very clear what governors can and can't do in an emergency so that in the future, they don't claim the types of powers they claimed during COVID. And I think it'll be interesting to see if, if that movement um, takes, you know, takes off as, as I believe it should. Um, but to get, you know, to get back to the vaccine mandates and all of that, May, what do you know about how people have reacted to Biden's proposal um, that the federal government require employers to require their employees to get vaccinated? Well, I, you know, there have been a lot of, you know, unfortunately, I think some businesses probably like it because they wanted to do it, but they were scared to. And then now they think maybe they're going to be mandated to. So I'm sure there's a mixed reaction among a bunch of people, um, which is always strange when people want to do something, but they want the government to tell them to do it because they're too scared to do it. Um, But uh at least, you know, immediately you had a bunch of governors uh, tweeting out, some AGs tweeting out that they're going to challenge this. Of course, there's nothing to challenge now. So uh, right. I think there's some people who are like, where's, you know, where's the action? Where's the lawsuit? Well, uh, Biden announced it, but it's not ready, which is not something that is very common and implies that it's not ready for a reason. Um, so yeah. then there were... Um, more than 20 AGs who signed a letter to the president, basically implying that legal action was coming. Right. And, you know, interestingly, the unions are too happy about it. And these are typical, you know, Democratic voters for the most part. Um, The unions are a big part of the Democratic base. I know that the American Federation of Government Employees put out a statement saying, you know, wait a minute, this is something you have to collectively bargain over. Um, you can't just just force employees to do this. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the unions stick with the president um, or, you know, generally, or if this is a, sort of a deal breaker with them politically um, in terms of, of earning and keeping their support. They've lost Nicki Minaj, I think. So there's at least <laughs> right another core constituency of the Democratic Party. Yeah, what's what's interesting about that also? You, you bring up unions, uh, Jennifer. There's also some exemptions to because the, the second part of this mandate was a mandate that seems to me to be much more within the scope of the federal government, which is the requirement that federal employees get vaccinated. Right. So the federal yes. government, as employer, making that decision for their employees. Um, and there's some really interesting carve outs. Like, so for example, apparently the postal service, um, is exempted from the, the federal mandate on their own employees. And that's because the postal service has an extremely strong, uh, organized labor pushback against this. So yes, there, there will be some democratic infighting on this. We're already seeing that here in New York city where BLM is protesting a restaurant for enforcing the vaccine mandate, um, 
and and there was an altercation there with some some ladies and gentlemen at the front door. Um, so yeah, I do think this is going to pit uh, various Democratic constituencies um, against one another. Uh, but but uh, what what are, for example, if we get away for a moment from the federal mandate, which I think we've all covered, you know, more or less, I think we can feel fairly confident that this this mandate will either not go into full effect or will be struck down in some way, whether that's limiting uh, the under the Commerce Clause or whether that's the administrative or um, whether it's it's uh, a good example of, of um, perhaps the court moving away from uh, Chevron deference uh, in terms of, of de- deferring to agencies when Congress is not clear in how it speaks, or whether it's just going to be struck down under the APA because these emergency mandates, as May, uh, May mentioned, the last time um, this was used, this type of, of um, rulemaking was used was in 1983, and I believe it was struck down then as well. Um, so this is not a, a high sort of probability, but just like the eviction moratorium, the point is one to signal to the president's base um, and score him political points. But two, I'm really worried about this like hand in glove dance that corporations are doing with with the government. Um, you said May that a lot of corporations wanted to do this, but they were afraid to. Um, and unfortunately, I, and Jennifer, I know you have this very, um, and I think that is in other times that would be correct this very like strict separation it's a it's a private employer it's going to make an independent decision um, about something like vaccine mandates and if they want to require it of employees and someone doesn't want to get vaccinated they can go and find an employer that doesn't care whether or not they're vaccinated right Um, this is how a free market system would operate but unfortunately i think more and more we're moving towards a system in which when the government wants to do something uh, but knows that it's probably going to be struck down and have trouble in the courts they just either briefly mandate it and wait for it to be struck down in the meantime. Like what company that puts in this kind of vaccination policy is going to re- repeal it once the law is struck down? Maybe some of them will, but a lot of them will not. Right. So they, they end up with the same goal that they want, even though they are using powers beyond what the federal and government. I, and I think has. what's so pathetic is, it, again, it's like you said, this isn't just about vaccine mandates. But if you want to do something, do it. Don't pretend you don't have a choice and then go beg the government to mandate it for you. I mean, that's just that's just spineless. Right. And and, you know, my concern is not that 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 once policies are in place, employers won't pull them back, because I do think employers are responsive to to their workforce and to the needs of their workers Um you know, particularly in, in certain labor markets where, where it's hard to get the best talent. I'm much more concerned that the government, once it, it takes a certain level of power, is never going to ratchet it back. That's never going to happen, right? Because there are no free market pressures on the government to do that. Um, one other thing I wanted to point out is I think we see we see this all the time in the media, that when people talk about whether or not the Biden proposal um, to require uh, employers of over 100 people to to get their workforces vaccinated. When people talk about whether that particular proposal is constitutional, they constantly refer back to this case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And I think that's completely the wrong precedent to be citing because Jacobson dealt with, it was a, a, a vaccination mandate 
by the Cambridge Board of Public Health, a local board of public health, um, and and it dealt with the smallpox epidemic at the turn of the century. And um, that case went up to the United States Supreme Court, and the United States Supreme Court held that, in fact, the city of Cambridge did have a right to require that the citizenry become vaccinated in you know, an emergency situation. Now, people in reputable uh, news sources point to that case and say, see, vaccine mandates are, are lawful. Biden can do whatever he wants. Well, that's not what that case said, right? As we've been trying to elucidate, there are very real differences between what the Cambridge Board of Public Health can do, what the governor of Massachusetts can do, what the Congress of the United States can do, and what a random administrative agency and the executive branch can do. And so just because a local government might be empowered to take emergency measures doesn't mean every as aspect of government can take those emergency measures. And the reason for that is that local government is responsive to the people, theoretically. Whereas, you know, an administrator at, at some agency in the, in the bowels of the federal government is not. Um, and so I, I think the public needs to take a step back and realize that when we're talking about vaccine mandates, it's, it's not, it's, we shouldn't paint with a broad brush and say all of them are awful no matter where they come from or who imposes them or, or all of them are terrific. The government should be able to do whatever it wants. We really need to look specifically at the facts, you know, the specific facts of COVID and yada, yada, but also the authority that's issuing the mandate and whether it's temp, you know, whether these the emergency powers are temporary. I mean, we need to look, the legal inquiry for any court is going to, to depend on these specific differences. Yeah. May, May, could you um, maybe talk, tell us a little bit about Jacobson? Um, I know uh, Jennifer just laid it out like the basics of the case. Um, but, but also sort of what the difference is legally in terms of challenges. So are people want to, if people want to challenge, say, I, I live in New York, um, there is a local version of this, um, of this kind of mandate, although it's different in key ways from the federal government one as well, in, in the sense that uh, it's, it's, it's really on things that are fundamentally optional, right? They're not necessarily coming for your job or your ability to uh, feed your family, but if you want to go, uh, to a concert or you want to do indoor dining. Um, they are recruiting businesses essentially as the enforcement mechanism for the city. Um, what do you think, uh, do you think that a city or a state mandate um, is challengeable or do you think that's likely to survive a court challenge versus a, a federal government mandate? So the state challenges are obviously harder and uh, Jacobson does stand for what it stands for, which is that the state has the police power, they can sort of regulate public health. Uh, that said, the person challenging it, and the fine was $5, they didn't want to pay the $5. Uh, they said that the Constitution didn't allow the state to impose that. And that type of argument was rejected by the Seventh Circuit. So Indiana University has a vaccine mandate. They've got various exceptions. Students challenged it saying, I have a substantive due process right to not get stabbed. Um, and I have a substantive, substantive due process right to go to this university without having all these requirements. Yeah, no, no. And 
<laughs> judge Easterbrook, uh, conservative judge said, no, Jacobson says, you know, and he also hates substantive due process. So that was not the right audience for that argument. Um, and then uh, Justice Amy Barrett declined to take the case, overrule it, you know, do anything with it. So, uh, so people think that now everyone can do whatever they want, as long as it's not the federal government. That's not exactly right, though. Uh, this is a 1905 case, and we have way more absurd laws over our employers and our states as employers than existed then. So, for example, uh, now I think the disparate impact Title VII type inquiries of how does this affect uh minorities who have far lower vaccination rates than uh, whites, you know, can you do that? I think there are questions about religious exemptions. You, under Title VII, have to provide reasonable accommodations for a religion. And some of those, those inquiries are going to be um, difficult. And without robust exemptions, the laws are going to be struck down. Um, I've heard uh, the ADA gets thrown around about whether uh, you can claim some sort of Americans with Disabilities Act right to not get vaccinated. I don't find I, I find that one a little bit tough um, because you're saying that there's a disability that prevents you from getting the vaccine and that there's no accommodation. So, you know, that I think you'd have to see the fact pattern. And then I've heard people say HIPAA. Uh, which is like a patient information, right? Right against spreading patient information protects you from vaccine mandates. But that's also not right because HIPAA applies to health insurers, hospitals, and not to regular employers and not to you for giving your own information out. Right. And so you mentioned the, the whole disparate impact inquiry um, you know, does this affect certain minority communities differently? Ines, could you just play that clip that we have from um, one of the leaders of Black Lives Matter claiming that vaccine mandates and passports are racist? I think that adds a whole nother dimension. to this. And to put this city on notice, you will not use these vaccines passports to cover up for your racist ways, to come up, to cover up for your discrimination. Because a lot of you out here behind these cameras, I know. And you knew what happened when the NYPD was used to enforce social distancing in this city last year. It laid, it led to a wave of protest right before George Floyd. So we will not have the NYPD being called into these restaurants to harass, attack, and arrest our people. No way, no how are we allowing that to happen. So what do you think? Are vaccine mandates racist? I just get a little voter ID laws are racist, then absolutely vaccine mandates. Right. Right. What's right? I mean you can't have it both ways, I suppose. They're either both racist or they're not. And I mean in some ways they raise they raise similar issues because the issue with the vaccine passport is once again having to have a certain form of identification. So I guess they're arguing once again that, you know, it's harder for people of certain races to acquire identification. I don't know. Um, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily for a vaccine passport, 
That said, I don't think the requirements um, are discriminatory as discrimination is defined under law. Um, and I don't think that things that have different racial impacts or different impacts on different segments of society um, are necessarily discriminatory. Clearly, the people who are imposing these mandates um, are not doing it because they're out to get black people. That's fairly clear to me. Yeah, what's what's at issue here? And I'm kind of disappointed how many people on the right are using this argument, like they're throwing it down as a chip, you know, and I understand the uh, the impulse to do that, because um, here it seems like we can use the left's arguments against them. Uh, but I am worried about the implicit buy-in on the idea of disparate impact. Every facially neutral policy has some sort of, of uh, disparate impact, whether that's racial or sex on the basis of sex. Um, and, and that is indeed where I think certain legal elements on the left want to take our law, that any, um, any disparities, any disparities in outcome is necessarily the result of discrimination. But that is a concept that is fundamentally tyrannical. Um, it's certainly, it's, it's, it's what underlies Ibram Kendi's philosophy um, and, and critical race theory, which is to say there is actually no form of neutral policymaking if there is a disparity, if you don't have the exact population you know, mix um, from the city or the state or the country uh, in terms of, of how many uh, black folks versus white folks versus Asian folks versus, you know, Hispanic folks you have in your in your company in your or or um, who are affected by a given policy, then that policy or company is discriminatory. And that's the reason for those disparities. And that's the only reason that we're going to consider for those disparities. And I, I just think that whole line of argument, I know that it's tempting in the case of these vaccine mandates for the right to just be like, oh, well, look, we're going to use this against them. But the reality is that disparate impact analysis is really dangerous um, in the law. That's one of the things I fear the most, particularly with as applied to sex as opposed to race. But even as applied to race, um, I mean, it just seems it seems so dangerous. It seems like a sort of Harrison Burgian kind of situation where we're going to try to like force everybody to like you know, to have exactly the same outcomes, or we're going to pass aspersions and potentially um, strike down a law that doesn't have exactly the same outcomes uh, on the basis of race. But here's the dirty little secret. No law has exactly the same. All laws impact some people more than others because of, of different choices, different culture, different, um, you know, different family structure, different, like whatever, uh, different, different income level, obviously. So, um, there's a million ways in which you can you can uh, cast aspersions of this type on literally any law. So uh, just just my two cents is that the right should not be using these disparate impact arguments because I think they're more dangerous broadly, even though um, they're, they're sort of an easy way to kick the left on on these kinds of, of um, vaccine mandates. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Inez, on that. The whole disparate impact theory is so pernicious in so many ways. But um it, you know, it's particularly silly to me in, in, in this context. Um, well, we are coming to the end of our hour here. Uh, but let's let's uh, let's rule this out with, with one last question for May. Um, let me I'm trying to think. Maybe, Jennifer, you have one. Well, here's something. I mean, we've been talking about, you know, it, um, employers sort of wanting this political cover from the government because, you know, at heart, employers are worried about liability, as you sort of alluded to before. Wouldn't 
the better solution be for Congress to immunize colleges and universities, schools and employers from COVID lawsuits and basically, you know, let every employee and 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 students sign a waiver saying, I understand the risks of COVID-19. I'm coming here on my own free will. And anything that happens to me, uh, I'm not going to hold my university or my employer liable. End of story. Wouldn't that solve the problem when it comes to all of these mandates, whether it's masking, um, vaccine mandates, any of it? Why shouldn't Congress just do that? That seems to be a very simple solution. Well, they should. And and I think people don't really realize how important liability protections have been to everything that we have had to protect us from COVID. So the emergency use authorization that people like to say, oh, you know, the vaccine isn't really authorized. It's, it's an emergency use authorization. Well, what the EUA actually really does is it immunizes from suit that product, the people who administer that product, the people who make it, the people who distribute it. And so that power has allowed us to all have masks. I mean, no one would be creating masks if you could sue, oh, I was wearing my mask and I got COVID. And so I'm going to sue the manufacturer. No one would ever make a mask or, you know, the vaccine, which has an EUA. I sued the nurse, the nurse, you know, the nurse probably didn't put it in right. No one would ever be a nurse. No one would ever give it out. So that liability protection is so important to the way that we operate, to being safe, to like to regaining our normal lives. And so Congress actually wanted to put in uh, liability protections when they were negotiating kind of the second big COVID package. So you had like a first little small one, you had a second big one. And then the third one was the one where the Democrats wouldn't sign anything. They said, oh, no, no, we won't, we won't, we won't. And it's funny because then after the pandemic was basically over, then they passed a huge one that no one needed. But um, the the Republicans just couldn't get it done. They couldn't get liability protections passed. And it's a really big failure. It's a huge failure. That's something that's still possible now, because that's where you really see sort of the lingering effects of the pandemic. I mean, I, I anticipate that even as cases go down more and more and more and vaccination rates go up and death rates plummet, we're still going to see these institutions taking draconian measures just to cover their own asses unless Congress acts. I mean, so is that something that that we might see in the future? Well, I think you're going to get zero Democratic votes for it because the plaintiff's bar is something like 95 percent Democrat uh, donors. I had an article about it, so I'm not exactly sure. It's it's in the 90s, though. Wow. Um, and so you're going to get zero Democrat votes, so you're not going to see anything for the next two years. And then do you have enough Republican votes? Well, depends on who's union-backed, right? Because maybe the unions want to be able to sue. It depends on – there's just so many politics because there's so much money out there in suing your employer. I'm yeah, a larger, larger issue of, of um, you know, one of the, the most powerful forces, and we should totally do an episode about this, uh, Jennifer, but one of the most powerful forces uh, behind Congress and in terms of the halls of Congress and lobbyists trial is, 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 is trial lawyers, plaintiffs bar. Um, and, and generally, it doesn't hurt that uh, I think something like 60 of the 100 senators are themselves lawyers. So um, the, the sort of internal grift of the legal profession uh, is is a continual problem in the halls of Congress, but uh, it has been about an hour. So I think we're going to wrap this up. Um, at 
the Bar is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. And we are now available for download on all your favorite podcast apps, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and whatever else you get your podcasts. Um, I, I uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us uh, for this episode of At the Bar. I'm Inez Stepman again, and... I'm Jennifer Braceres. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks. Thank you, Mae Davis, for joining us at the bar. Cheers. <laughs>